Welcome to Highway Christian Community Sermon Downloads. For more sermons, please visit our website. We know you will be blessed as you listen. Take care and God bless. So, I want you to help me here this morning. I'm going to continue in the series of uh, this month, the discipleship course. We're doing the topic of discipleship. If you were here last week, You'll remember we looked at Jesus' strategy, which were the four E's. He engaged with those he wanted to follow him. Um, he established them in truths privately, sharing in the parables and other teachings. He then equipped them on the job training to go and minister. And then ultimately he empowered them. He only had three years. Do you know that if Jesus didn't get that right, those stages of his master plan the gospel would have fallen short in the first generation. But his disciples went and made disciples because they were empowered. By having been engaged, established and equipped, they went and were empowered and the gospel spread phenomenally in the first hundred years. It created enough momentum to sustain the very dark age years that lay ahead. The brutal murders and the persecutions that followed on the heels of that first hundred years. Jesus had a strategy. So we looked at that last week. But it beckons the question, what is this thing that we call a disciple? A Christian, yes. Synonym for, for a believer, yes. Is it synonymous with a follower of Jesus, yes. What is this disciple that we're aiming at. Because if we've got nothing to aim at, it's like playing soccer on a field, two teams, with a soccer ball and no goalposts. Can you imagine watching that game? They can do a lot of passing, a lot of maneuvering, a lot of strategy, but really, what's the point? <laughs> I mean, what, imagine watching a soccer game with no goalposts. Hey, Brian? Oh, wow, he's playing so well, but why? So, so what is the goal? What is this thing... That's a disciple. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, there would be varied definitions using different language. But if you boil it down, you come to kind of a, a, a basic thing. And that's not to mean it's a clone thing, stereotyping people by putting a template up on a church wall and impressing everybody into it as they walk past. And we all look the same, say the same. I'm Daryl, that's my brother Daryl, that's my cousin Daryl. My dad's name was Daryl. But what is this thing called disciple? And I'd like to share with you three relationships that will help us know what the goalpost looks like. Three relationships of what a disciple is. And as I said, preparing for this yesterday, I'm a, I was really gripped with the sense of, you know, Lord, if the church for the next three years preaches the gospel in every church building, in every country, in every part of the world, there'll be some change. But we won't change the world unless converts become disciples. Are you with me? Because a convert is a convert. It's the greatest miracle on the planet. But if a convert is not established, equipped, and empowered. So what is this thing called a disciple? I'd like to share with you a couple of uh, 
pointers, the three relationships of a disciple, which will give us some kind of definition of what this is. The first is our relationship to God. And this I will call our devotion. I don't know how it happened with you when you got saved, but I came out of a non-church, non-Bible background. And when I encountered Jesus, I woke up in the morning and I couldn't believe that when I opened the book to the Psalms and began to read, it was like tears would just start streaming down my face. It was like I'd fallen in love and I felt like I'd started all over again, again. And there was this love that I felt flowing between myself and my God. It was this, in the words of David, I love the Lord for He heard my voice and He heard my cry for mercy. That first relationship that is restored is that relationship where we know God is for us. Because He turned His ear to me, I will call on Him as long as I live. There's this like evaporating of prayer that connects with God and says, Lord, I love you. And as we heard in the prophetic this morning, we've got to keep fighting for that first love. Because that is what this discipleship is all about. It's this being engrossed in a love relationship with my Lord, with my Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the good news is it's not just a one-way love. It's not just me loving Him. In fact, your love for Him is a response of His love for you. And in David's words again, Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Amen? Our hope and confidence is that His love to us is greater than our love for Him could ever be. But the first part of our relationship that's restored is this devotional part of our relationship with God. The second part of our relationship with God that's restored is our standing, our position before Him, our confidence to come into His presence. And we hear the words in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The second part of our relationship with God that's restored is that we come boldly into His presence. There's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no fear. And it's taken some of us a long time to believe that. Because we grew up with pictures and understandings of God being an angry God. A God whose main mission on earth was to catch you out. Like a wicked stepfather. Not all stepfathers are wicked, by the way. I had a great one, but... Just like some, a parent always frowning and always looking down on you. And we had to come to know that God's opinion of us is Jesus. Because the same sin that was on Jesus was undeserved. That same righteousness came on me, which is undeserved, but positions me. And if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Because as he is so are we in this world. Sorry. Because as He is, so are we in this world. We have a new standing between our far, before our Father. It's like Jesus did that finished work on the cross as an overpayment. If it would have just cost one drop of divinity, of divine, eternal blood to seal the covenant, 
Jesus went all the way. It's like when the waitress comes and gives you your bill, instead of giving her 10%, which is, say, 30 rand, you give her 300,000 rand. You lift up a briefcase and you say, that's for you. And she opens it. And she, it would be an overpayment. It would be seen as almost being ridiculous. I mean, she'd be very happy with your ridiculousness. But that's not the... Uh, to the normal, casual onlooker, it would be like, you didn't need to do that. that that's just going overboard. Jesus went overboard. Because he wanted to put you in right standing that could never be questioned and never be doubted. So that's our first relationship. So a disciple is someone who has that kind of relationship with God. And then also in our relationship with God, our authority. Authority changes. Says Jesus saying in John 15 verse 7, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Isn't that amazing thought? To, that, that God has limited himself to the agreement and prayers of his people? I mean, every time I say that, I'm still amazed that God would do that. Because God is God, he can do anything. But because he can do anything, he chose to limit himself to the agreement of being in a body. It happened in the garden, it was lost. It happened in Mary, Jesus came. And Jesus, through being in Christ, God took back the keys that were illegitimately taken. And now, through his church, he's enforcing what Christ won at the cross. The finished work of the cross is finished, but the Holy Spirit hasn't finished applying the finished work of the cross. And that happens when his words are in us and we are in him. And we speak in line and in agreement with him. Can you see now, a disciple, first of all, is someone whose relationship with God is one of devotion, is one of standing, and is one of authority. The second relationship we want to look at is this relationship that's in, in a community. Because the first church, after Peter preached the message in Acts 2, it says the believers devoted themselves to the fellowship. It's like they knew that to be a disciple, it had to happen in a family. What a family is to a baby, the local church community is to the new convert. And the Bible says they devoted themselves because they knew it was good for them to come under the apostles' doctrine to be in fellowship, prayer, and the breaking of bread. Fellowship is our relationship with the church community, our second relationship. So let's look at that relationship. Number one, it's a family. Say family. That's a powerful word. Such a lacking word in, in the world today. That you can be part of a family. And I, we're so blessed. I know many of us have seen our kids go overseas and that is traumatic and hard. I don't believe God intended that to happen. I think he intended us to stay in communities with our grandchildren, three generations together. When the papas die off, the dads become papas and the children have children. I, the whole world got mixed, messed up in the fall. There's all kinds of suffering, hardship and pain that we can't blame God for. 
We live in a fallen world, and there's grace for that. But to belong to a church family is a great privilege. And in the same way in a family, there's disagreements, and iron sharpens iron, and you don't always get your own way, and someone forgets and doesn't set the table for you. But when we work it out, and when we get over our fences and our uh, uh, disappointments and, and, and not getting what we thought we were going to get, when we get over that stuff, we are growing from babies to children to adults. And that is the goal of any parent, is not to prepare children, but to prepare adults, to see them go. We recently had a situation, our daughter had a move from one place to another into her own flat. And so she came and said, I need boxes to move. Now, when a daughter says that to her mother, what she's really saying is, Mom, will you go get me some boxes and then come and pack? But when a daughter says that to her dad, her dad says, come, I'll take you and show you where to find the boxes. And I might help you pack the first one. Okay, moms are moms, dads are dads. Point is, we are preparing and equipping our children for life. In the church, when you deal with offenses, when you deal with disappointments, when you devote yourself to caring for others and loving others, you are maturing in the house. Amen? I'm telling you, sometimes you get offended with someone and you run away from that church and you find that same person in the next church. I'm te- I've done that. I, true, before God, whatever, left, got saved, gone to church, had a huge personality clash, left years later, came to Durban, same guy in the same church. But what we do need to do is what Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you, so must you love one another. Isn't that powerful? That is the ingredient for a church community to come to maturity, is that we really love each other. And love is spelt serving and giving time. Love is spelt caring and praying for somebody. Love is spelt challenging people to stay Christ-centered in their life. You know, and dads and moms don't only say little flowery poems to their children all the time. There are times where you need to challenge them to pull their socks up. And as believers, we need to challenge each other. Is Christ central? Is, are you trusting in Him? Are you looking to Him? Are you letting the problems around you get your eyes off Him? Come on, get your focus back on Jesus. We need to challenge one another. That's love. Another thing that happens in a family is that there are uh, shared responsibilities. Shared responsibilities that are age appropriate. What you expect of a child and a teenager are different. But there's different giftings, different callings, different abilities that people have in a family. And that's also true of the church. Oh, Jesus finishes that love thing by this. All men will know that you're my disciples. Sorry, that could have been the most important part of that verse. Okay, so the second thing is this, uh, a family sharing responsibilities, sharing uh, the load, our gifts. Romans 12 verse 3 says, For by the grace given me, Paul writing, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, 
but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. He's given us all a measure of faith. Okay? And it goes on. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function, our arms, our legs, our ears, our eyes. It says, so in Christ, say, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So you belong to somebody sitting next to you. The knee bone is connected to the, 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 the sinew and the muscle and the uh, leg bone and the femur and the thigh bone. We have different gifts. <laughs> Janet wants to sing it. We have different gifts. Say different gifts. According to the grace given us, if a man's gift is to prophesy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. So you see, as we use our gift, our faith for that thing increases. Whether it's serving, prophesying, uh, praying for the sick, casting out demons, preaching the gospel. Whatever we use, our faith in that area grows. So, so as our faith grows, we can use it more effectively. So when so, you see someone who's really fluent in the gift of prophecy, just know that it's not because they are God's favorite, it's because they have just practiced and stepped out and made mistakes and honed that gift, right? And that's true of all the others, and it talks about serving and various other gifts in that passage. So what God's looking for in this family relationship is that we love one another, irrespective of our warts, freckles, differences, and we just keep on loving each other. Like Bob Mumford said when he was asked how did he manage to stay married for 50 years, he said sometimes you just got to love your enemy. But he got, can get away with saying that. I would never dare say that in church. Sometimes you just got to love the person. They irritate you. They're annoying. They're a pain. They say things that just Make their head stand up on the back of your neck. But if you've got to love your enemy, you can love them too. Amen? Thank you for your great uh, support. I'm in huge trouble when I walk out here today. Okay, the last one. So we saw a disciple is someone who's in this relationship, devotionally, authority, and position. They're in this relationship in love and being willing to use their gift, meeting needs, stepping out, growing. And then finally, it's a relationship to unbelievers. And this one, we have spent some time on, but I guess when I think of this relationship, when put yourself in your workplace tomorrow, and you're surrounded by people who don't claim to believe in Christ, unbelievers. There are only two kinds of people in the world, dead people and living people. Living people are those who have been born again. And you're surrounded by people who don't profess to be born again. And when we get to heaven, which we are going to, amen. I'm quite excited about that, by the way. Some days more than others. We're not going to get 
surrounded by non-believers and non-born-again people. So this is it, church. It's now. So where do we start? A love for people. That beautiful scripture in John 3.16 that talks about why God sent His Son. Starts off with, For God so loved the world. Lord, I want to love the world. Maybe you've fallen out of love with the world around you. Maybe you've fallen out of love with corrupt politicians and media, drama, and uh, all the other nonsense that's going on. But we can never fall out of love with the individual. God so loved. Lord, more than anything else, more than remembering those six questions to ask a non-believer, more than getting face-to-face with someone who needs... More important than all those things is this one thing. God, give me love for people who don't know you. That's where the relationship begins. And then secondly... Our message is found in our new identity. You see, when you got born again, something changed. Now, we know that we didn't become perfect the next day. Anybody? Except you, Jane. Put your hand down. Everyone else knows they didn't become perfect the day after they got saved. And I'll tell you what's happened to some of you. You've gone very excitedly and told people about this wonderful good news. And what they've heard you say is, you think you're a holy Joe. And you're perfect. And you're more righteous than them. So they start looking for ways to catch you out. And make little comments. And little snide. Oh, look at the duomini. Look at the Christian. And when we're not living in grace and understanding our new identity, we can get dragged into guilt and condemnation so badly. To a point where the devil can almost mute us from wanting to share our testimony. Because we know we're not perfect. But we already know we're not perfect. But it takes the non-believer to point out that we're not perfect. And I believe I'm speaking to someone here this morning. You and you being harassed at work over your stand for Christ. And the way they're harassing you is they look for the things you do wrong. And the little thing, and because you might have had a paper clip in your file that you took home. And then they make a big joke about that you're a thief. And they use little things about using the company telephone. I'm not saying you must or whatever. But I'm just saying they're looking for ways to run you down and you feeling condemned about it. You need to know your identity is in Christ first. And if his opinion of you is, I will remember your sins no more. You can get every, up every day and hold your head up high. But at the same time, because we knew our creatures in Christ... The identity that's been given to us begins to seep through our lives. And things we used to enjoy, we don't enjoy anymore. And things we used to say, we don't say anymore. And you'll find yourself, I did even recently, someone told a terrible joke. I can't laugh at that just to, you know, be to Rome, Romans, Rome, and Greeks, Greek, and Jews, a Jew. It's not funny. If it's not funny, it's not funny. You don't laugh at it. What changed? Now you see something inside you changed. After you were born again, there's some things that you don't want to speak like that about anymore. There's some things you don't want to do anymore. And there's some things you're still growing through. And you know that. 
And I know that because I'm your pastor. No, I know it because I live with myself. And we know we're not perfect, but people around us do. No, I tell you, non-believers are the best people at knowing how Christians should live. They'll tell you exactly what you should do and shouldn't do. And maybe that's the reason they don't want to get born again, because they've set a certain standard that is not the biblical standard. Because the New Testament is full of behavioral stuff. But the behavioral stuff isn't to get us saved. The behavioral stuff is not to get God's favor. The behavioral stuff is just what we should start looking like when what's in us comes out of us. But the non-believer, he's just seen that and he's terrified. If he became a Christian, he can't go to the movies, he can't read books, he can't swear, he can't lie, he can't cheat. So he's watching you. In the context of that, I want you to read this verse. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. You're doing better than you think. And even when you make mistakes, and you can apologize, and you can walk in humility, even when you're doing your best and you're being accused, On that day, you will be a testimony. Amen? I hope that helps someone. And then, of course, relationship with non-believers. First of all, love them. Secondly, do your best. Thirdly, take every opportunity he gives you. Paul writing from a little prison cell to Timothy says, Do not be ashamed to testify about the Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Wow. Do not be ashamed. There was one thing when I got saved that I knew for sure that before I got saved, I was lost. There was no question about it in my mind. And I also had lived in an environment where lost people, for all the glitz and glamour, were hopeless, broken-hearted, void of future uh, vision, hope for the future. Not all of them. Many of them shrouded it over in all kinds of things. But when you pressed, you knew that people were lost. So when I... I nearly said found Jesus, but he wasn't lost. Sorry, I was lost. When Jesus found me, I knew lost people needed to find, to come to Christ. And it came out naturally. I didn't have to do an evangelism course to tell me that I had to be ready on every occasion to share my faith. In fact, I think I was a pain in the neck at times. Because, I mean, literally, I would hitchhike to work in the mornings. Those days at the factory started at 6. You know, it's still dark in the morning. You're standing on the side of the road hitchhiking. Guy would pick me up. And all he had to do was make a comment like, oh, it's really cold today. And I'd go, yes, but Jesus on the inside is a fire. He's a flame. He, is, he warms and soothes the soul. Do you know this Jesus? 
You might be cold today, my friend, but there's a day where there will be hellfire for those who don't know Him, but you can receive the warmth of His love today. And you'd say, I don't know if I'm picking this mad guy up again. But don't be ashamed. You don't have to do it like that. Okay? In fact, don't. All right? Billy Graham says, maybe you should lock up a radical Christian for six months before. But my wife says, no, let the radical Christians loose. <laughs> let them loose. 